4: And we continue with our American stories. And on this day in history, in 1975, the Edmund Fitzgerald sank. Most of us, by the way, know about this wreck because of the Gordon Lightfoot hit single, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. But this story is more than a mere song. Today, we're joined by Rick Mixter, who knows this story firsthand. He's been down to the wreck. Here's our own Monty Montgomery with a story.
3: When we think of the word lake, we often think of a calm, placid, and small body of water. But the Great Lakes are anything but that.
5: People underestimate them. You know, it literally, they think they're ponds. They think that they're, you know, they're, they're much smaller than the ocean. And the truth is that the Great Lakes span over a thousand miles. You know, Lake Superior is immense. And, unfortunately, it has these jagged shoals that, uh, unlike the ocean, it's confined. So these shoals bounce waves back and forth. And these confused waves on the Great Lakes tend to uh, really mess with ships and, and make it very difficult to navigate in a storm. And the
3: results of these confused seas have often been deadly.
5: There's a huge argument on how many shipwrecks are on the Great Lakes because it's really hard to judge. This, most of the time we would put it to you know, insurance settlements. Let's look at Lloyd's of London or other places that paid out, but we don't know if they were recovered. If you said on the bottom, most people would probably throw out a number between 6,000 and 10,000 shipwrecks that are still on the bottom.
3: But out of all these shipwrecks, there's one that has been etched into the collective consciousness of the people of the Great Lakes, the Edmund Fitzgerald. And there's a reason for that.
5: Fitzgerald is famous for two words, Gordon Lightfoot. (laughs) It's literally a a wreck that I think would have been forgotten if not for a Canadian songwriter who took the story and turned it into a seven and a half minute song that went to number two on the charts. And once that happened, it became enamored not only by the people of the Great Lakes, it became their song, um, played every November. Every time you turn on the radio, somebody plays it at that time because of the gales of November and to remember the crew. Nobody argues that it's not Gordon Lightfoot. It is the largest shipwreck on the Great Lakes by a couple hundred feet. The Fitzgerald was 729 feet long and uh, lost with all hands which was part of the mystery I think that captivated even Gordon Lightfoot and uh, that's why it kind of became a story. How in 1975 could you have a 700 foot freighter with 29 men completely vanished? Fitzgerald was one of the last of the ships built in Michigan which we used to have an amazing shipbuilding uh, prowess. We were number one on the Great Lakes for years just a massive ship I mean it was the flagship for Columbia transportation so when it was launched not only was she the biggest but she was well appointed she had the the best skipper according to Columbia uh, the best cook because they would um, entertain many of the steel companies like National Steel's president or you know bigwigs would come on board bring their family along and uh, you know it would have inside jail Hudson company the, the famous Hudson store had all of the appointments inside so your beds all of the furniture, which had to be custom cut to fit the canter of the uh, floor of the Fitzgerald, which was you know, slightly rounded, they had to cut the legs of the beds to fit correctly. So it, it was the flagship, it was the ship that everybody wanted to, to be assigned to, and it was certainly the ship that gave out many rides to people. It was also fast, they called it the Toledo Express, because it made that run so quickly.
3: And for the next 17 years, the Edmund Fitzgerald would continue to make that trip from Superior, Wisconsin, to Detroit laden with iron ore. And there was no reason to expect that on November 9th, 1975, her trip under the command of Captain Ernest McSorley would go any differently.
5: It it was a Sunday, and it was in Superior, Wisconsin, on a beautiful day. And Jack McCarthy, the first mate, would be in charge of telling the guys, you know, all the loading, make sure that the ship was loaded evenly and which they would go underneath a gravity-fed dock and it would actually spill these round taconite pellets into the, the cargo hold, which they took 26,000 tons. This is where Gordon Lightfoot was, was wrong on a couple of accounts in his song. He said uh, fully loaded for Cleveland, but it wasn't fully loaded. It was less than uh, two thirds loaded because she was actually going to River Rouge near the area to the Zug Island. And in order to get into that slip, she couldn't carry all of her cargo because she would hit bottom in the Detroit River. So not fully loaded, not going to Cleveland, actually going into the Detroit area with a, a load of iron ore that would eventually become automobiles. And they take off into a beautiful day. And as they do, McSorley in the pilot house actually sees that a big storm is coming up. He's got a, a radio that he can get reports through, and he's a weather ship. So he takes his observations and adds them to the weather reports to help forecasters try to develop where the storm's going to go. And it's quickly ascertained that, that he's going to get a storm that's going to come right through from Oklahoma all the way up to Marquette. And so he starts to calculate how long that would take and, and uses the forecast that he's getting given as well and has to determine what he's going to do. But McSorley was a well-seasoned captain and the coming storm likely didn't
3: phase him too much, despite some of the reservations he may have had on the ship.
5: McSorley had been a a skipper that had been on the Great Lakes for years and years and worked his way up to the Edmund Fitzgerald. He was very stern from the people that I talked to, um, very matter-of-fact guy. As we talked uh, to a, a third mate in my documentary called The Fitzgerald Investigations, he remembered going through a Lake Superior storm with just 10-foot waves, where the Fitzgerald would flex so crazily, unlike any ship he had been on. And he looked at McSorley and he said, uh, man, it, it, should it be bending like this? And McSorley said, um, sometimes it scares me. So, literally, he knew that this ship was, was different than other ships. He knew that it, it would um, flex in these storms, but because as a part-time job he did hull inspection, He was very well versed in the strength of these ships, and he unfortunately pushed the Fitzgerald way beyond its means. As I did the investigation documentary, I found the Coast Guard looked into it. They looked at 10 years at the Sioux Locks, the worst storms that ever happened up until 1975, and the one ship that kept pushing every storm and made it through the locks during those gales was the Edmund Fitzgerald. So he was a rough weather skipper. He pushed the heck out of the ship, And it eventually broke because of it.
3: So the Fitzgerald pushed forward. And soon they would get company to ride out the storm with, in the form of the Arthur M. Anderson, another Laker captained by Bernie Cooper.
5: And Cooper also is a, you know, these guys are experienced meteorologists. They have to be. Their lives depend on it. And they start to to figure out when the storm will come and what they're going to do. As they pass Isle Royal, they've got a place that they can hide there from these northwest winds that are starting to build. They continue going, but they take the northern route. The northern route goes closer to Canada. Uh, jokingly, some of the sailors call that the scenic route because otherwise you might not ever see land. As you go around, the Keweenaw would be the last spot as you make that long haul past Marquette and make your way to the Sioux Locks and uh, Whitefish Bay. But uh, as they're going up, they, they go all the way past Otterhead in a second spot that they could throw out their anchor because it's so close to the Canadian shore, the waves can't build there. So you're pretty safe. You could wait it out, but they didn't. They decided they were gonna make it for Whitefish Bay. They thought that the storm would take an extra hour to get to them and they were wrong. As they got past uh, Caribou, it was the worst the storm could be, and they were in the absolute worst place they should be on Lake Superior, where those winds now could build the entire length of the lake and crash into the ship, and crash into them in the stern and on their starboard side. So if they had any problems at all, they were gonna get into real trouble there, and that's what happened to Fitzgerald.
4: And you're listening to Rick Mixter tell the story of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. As he put it, how in 1975 could you have a 729 foot freighter completely vanish? The answer to that question, you'll hear it after these messages here on Our American Stories.
2: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
4: And we continue with our American stories and our story on the Edmund Fitzgerald, which was sunk on this day in history in 1975. When we last left off, the Fitzgerald was sailing into the worst storm on Lake Superior alongside another ship, the Arthur M. Anderson Let's return to Rick Mixter with the rest of the story.
5: As the Fitz is going past Caribou, it realizes it has some kind of problem. They looked down the deck and they could see that at least one of their vents was missing. These look like mushrooms that are on the deck. And they're very large and they're used to equalize the pressure below decks. But of course, Fitz has two-thirds of a cargo in there. Well, as he noticed that one of those is missing, he also uh, finds out from his uh, engineers that he's taking on water. So they're running their pumps to try to keep that water out. He also mentions something really unique. He says our fence rail is down. And that has been interpreted in a couple of different ways. The fence rail could be the guide rails that are on the side of the ship that perhaps some piece of debris came on, smashed its vent off, and also damaged that part of the rail. So he's radioing back and forth to the Anderson that he's got these problems and then all of a sudden mentions his radars are out. And he was worried because the uh, McSorley had noticed that out of Whitefish Bay there were several saltwater ships and including a a big freighter called the William Clay Ford um, and another one that were trying to get out of Whitefish Bay and he worried he'd get into a collision situation in the blinding snow that was happening. So he asked the Anderson to keep an eye out for them because his radars were out. So he's going blindly into this storm The uh, Anderson is now trying to close the distance because the Fitzgerald, being a faster boat, was a mile or several miles ahead of them. The last broadcast came from Morgan Clark, the first mate on board the Anderson, who asked the Fitzgerald, how are you making out with your problems? And the Fitzgerald McSorley answered back, we are holding our own. And uh, unfortunately, in a blinding snow squall, the uh, Fitzgerald disappears, it disappears from radar because the, uh, the the blinding snow also blinded the radar out. When it finally clears, Anderson can't see the Fitzgerald, and now their job is trying to notify the Coast Guard that a 729-foot freighter is missing. Uh, the last time that you
3: uh, talked to them at what time that one was over? I asked him how he was making out with his problem. Uh, he said he lost those vents and he had a lift and he said he was holding his own. Uh, the last time I talked with him, he said he was holding his own and uh, that's the last time i uh, lost contact after that.
5: Nobody wanted to believe that the Fitzgerald was gone, especially the Coast Guard. As And we're very lucky that um, immediately the Coast Guard started recording all of these conversations, so we actually have the conversations as the the Cooper is trying to tell the Coast Guard that they have um, missed the Fitzgerald. So here the Anderson is now making the safety of Whitefish Bay after now 29 guys have been lost, a massive steel modern freighter has been lost to the storm and they call the Coast Guard who tells them we don't have a ship that can go out there. So the Coast Guard has to convince the captain of the Anderson that just witnessed this freighter sinking to turn around, come out of the safety of Whitefish Bay, and go back into that killer storm, and he definitely did not want to do that. Right from the the radio broadcast, we hear Cooper say, you know, there's going to be two of us on the bottom. You know, he really believed going back out there was was going to be you know a, a bad mistake, but he knew he was the only choice. So they went back out there. You know, at that time it was 60 mile an hour winds. He, it was going to take him two hours to go 17 miles with those intense winds that blowing right against them. And I don't think they believed that anybody would survive it. You know, with big 30-foot waves and water temperatures that were just above freezing, there really wasn't much chance. And unfortunately, it was a futile attempt. But I think that that was the spirit of the lakes. You do what you can. Uh, first, save, make, sure, make sure your crew is going to survive it. And then, you know, if you can safely do it, you go out there and make the rescue. And, and he did, to the truest tradition of sailors, you know, try to find those guys. But unfortunately, you know, as we know, nobody survived and no bodies were found. Then came the task of actually finding the final resting place of the Fitzgerald
3: on the bottom of Lake Superior.
5: It didn't take them very long so they used this robot called the Curve 3 to um, not only find it, but to secure it. The Curve 3 came out and they flew that down to 550 feet. And as they saw the bow, they noticed it was upright. But as they went around the, the, uh, the stern section, which was broken uh, uh, over 100 feet away, they noticed that the lettering was upside down. And the Coast Guard investigators immediately thought the ROV, or the robot, was inverted. And they, the, the uh, pilot said, no, it's not. This is, this is the back section, 200 feet of the Edmund Fitzgerald, that was upside down. So the horrible act of it tearing apart somewhere in the, the water column actually flipped the entire stern upside down, and the bow section is resting proudly upright on the bottom where you can actually see every deck in the pilot house as well.
3: And there the Fitzgerald sat, a gravesite for her 29 crew none of which were ever recovered. Immediately there were questions on why this modern lake freighter sank, and these questions still brew today. Did she hit bottom? Did she get hit by a rogue wave? Or did her hatch covers cave in? Answers were hard to find as the wreck site was soon protected by the Canadian government at the request of the families of the victims. So very few people have actually seen the wreck. But in 1994, Rick did.
5: In 94, we took the uh, Submersible Delta, which had been famous for diving the Lusitania. And uh, we went down in this two-man yellow submarine, and uh, I was the third dive on the uh, Delta Expedition. When you dive a shipwreck, you get down to it, and if you're free diving it or you're doing it on scuba um, equipment where you don't have a submarine around you, you can actually go up to it and touch it. You know, the cold steel and the immense size of these vessels is what really becomes um, apparent to you. The Fitzgerald was surreal in the fact that I was down 500 feet. The light stopped at about 250. So it's pitch black beyond, you know, whatever you have on board your submarine, which we had lots of lights. So it becomes very surreal as you look through the porthole, you can see glimpses of the ship, but not the whole ship at the same time. So as we went past the name, the letters are you know over a foot and a half tall. I'm trying to remember exactly how big they were, but that's what first captured my, my, my mind was, it said Edmund Fitzgerald, and it was horribly torn up on the port side. So the collision with the bottom had just ripped apart the spar deck from the side of the ship and the name had been scratched up and beat up so badly that it, it, it took my breath away. And as we went around the bow and to see the bow was actually bent almost 90 degrees, the, the force of the storm was just incredible. And then the tiny details, as you'd see a, a blanket hanging out of the pilot house, or you go up to the top and you'd see the, the radars that were you know Panasonic on top. The, the, it's a plastic, like just a little sliver of plastic ripped off and the wires were just there so you you start to piece together the story from that each one of those pieces not only awed me but you know you you were just so excited to see this great shipwreck and then when i came up we actually had uh power left in the submarine and so it was decided that the owner of the tugboat who we were renting from would uh would actually get to take his son down there for a, a look and we're eating lunch and we got a a report from the submarine through the sonophone the sound waves from the it's like a radio that goes through water and uh, we found out that they found a missing crewman so we went from this incredible high of me just visiting the most famous shipwreck on the great lakes the largest shipwreck on the great lakes at 550 feet down to a horrible low of oh my god there are 29 people that were lost there you lose that connection I think because you're in the sub and you're safe. When you're diving, it's really apparent that that these shipwrecks are, you know, this is a, a final grave because you have this water around you and you've got to be so careful when you're scuba diving to do that. I never lost that connection. But I think I did on the Fitzgerald because I felt so protected in the submarine. But that immediately was erased when they found a first missing crewman, a body lying off of the bow of the shipwreck wearing a life jacket. There's nothing more sobering than that. And instantly we were transported back to this is a gravesite.
3: The day after the wreck, the Mariner's Church in Detroit rang its bell 29 times for each of the crewmen lost. And this ceremony continues in Michigan today with the ship's actual bell, raised in 1995 and kept at Whitefish Point. But for the families of those lost on November 10th, 1975, the Edmund Fitzgerald is more than just a song. It's a tragedy that will always be remembered. For Our American Stories, I'm Monty Montgomery.
4: And great job as always to Monty Montgomery, a terrific job producing that piece and a real special thanks to Rick Mixter. The story of the Edmund Fitzgerald here on Our American Stories.
1: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.
2: BGW Group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18+.
3: Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no sign-ups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com